So there's a story that, well, let me just ask it this way. Have you, how many of you ever like attended Sunday school as a kid or something like Sunday school as a kid? Okay, a lot of you. All right. So maybe you've heard this story before because this is without question the number one most popular flannel graph story in the history of the world. It seems that there was a giant who was challenging the people of God. And he kept coming out onto the battlefield and he was bigger than everyone and he was stronger than everyone and his weapons were more advanced than everyone and he was intimidating. And he would step out on behalf of the Philistines into the middle of the battlefield and call out the armies of God. And he would mock God and he would challenge them and he would say, let's do this one-on-one. Instead of all of us crashing into one another and having all of this loss of life, let, let me see your champion, your greatest warrior. Send him out and I'll take him on one-on-one. And he would do this again and again and again. Now the great champion of Israel was the king. The scripture tells us that King Saul was head and shoulders taller than everyone else in the kingdom. So just as Goliath stood out among the Philistines, Saul stood out among the Israelites. And there he was with his army arrayed, all of them in battle array, all of them with weapons in their hands, and all of them quaking in their boots because when they looked at Goliath, they knew that one-on-one they had absolutely no chance against him. And Saul refused to move. And day in and day out, again and again and again, as you know, he would come out and he would challenge them. And every day they would shake and nobody would go out. And so finally Saul, realizing that sooner or later he was going to have to fight this battle if he couldn't find a warrior who was willing, he began to make promises. He gathered the men and he said, pass this word down among the ranks. Let them know that whoever steps up and fights this champion of the Philistines, if he defeats him, he can marry any of my daughters. He'll become royalty automatically. And still no one stepped out. And and then he gathered his captains together and he said, listen, add this. Anybody who defeats that champion... He can marry any of my daughters and I will make him unbelievably rich. And still nobody stepped forward. Finally, he gathered his men and said, pass the word. If they defeat the giant, they can marry any of my daughters. I will make him unbelievably rich. And they and their family will live tax-free for the rest of their lives. Now, I don't know what it was like in Israel, but tax-free in California would be awesome. (laughs) And still, nobody answered. Now, the story that I heard in Sunday school was a story about this giant coming out and this young shepherd boy who came forward and he went up and with just a, a stone and a sling, he shot and hit the guy between the eyes. The giant fell. He went over, cut off his head, and Israel won the victory. Isn't that the story that you heard? You know the story they didn't tell you in Sunday school? 
You can find this. Go back and read 1 Samuel. You will find this. That as David arrived that day at the, at the front lines of the battle, he was just sent there to bring lunch to his brothers. He was the youngest of all of his brothers. He was not yet considered old enough to be in the battle. And his father had sent him with bread and cheese and said, take this to your brothers and bring me back a report of how they're doing. And so David shows up with a sack lunch in his hand and he sees this giant out there making these threats. And he goes up to somebody in the line and he asks this question, what will be done for the man who defeats this giant? And they said, well, it's, it's uh, any one of the king's daughters and a lot of money tax free. And David heard that. And his ears perked up, and he went over to some other guy, and he said, hey, that can't be right, can it? What, what will be done for the one who defeats this warrior? Any one of the king's daughters, all kinds of money, tax-free. This is astonishing. He went to the third group of soldiers, and he said, hey, what will be done? I'm hearing these rumors. What will be done for the man who defeats this champion. Any of the king's daughters, tax-free money the rest of his life. And by the time he had asked three times, the word got back to King Saul, hey, somebody might be interested in this fight. (laughs) King Saul immediately says, send him to me. He comes over to him, and David is just a teenager. We, We have to estimate his age. We think he was probably 15, 16 years old at this time. And he's just a shepherd boy, and he's just carrying the lunches. But he heard what the prize would be. And he decided he would compete for the prize. He asked not once, not twice, but three times, what will I get if I defeat this warrior? You get a beautiful woman. You get boatloads of money. And you're going to live tax-free for the rest of your life. You'll be rich forever. And that's the part they didn't tell me in Sunday school. I just thought, this guy is so brave. This guy's so tough. He just comes up. But it's so interesting when you read the story. Three times he says, what's the reward again? Tell me about the reward. What is the reward? Women and money. He goes, where do I sign up? And... He goes to the king and the king says, all right, if you'll do it, you're in. Puts his armor on him. The king is a giant of a man. David is a young youth, right? And so the armor doesn't fit. It weighs too much. He can't move. He says, I can't fight in this. And and the question essentially is, well, then how are you going to fight? I can't just send you out there dressed as a shepherd. He says, don't worry. I've got experience fighting wild animals. I could do this. And the scripture tells us that he picks up five smooth stones and he has a sling. Now, when I was a kid, the sling, I don't know what does it look like in this picture. It's kind of in between. When I was a kid, I thought the sling was like the one that you pull back like this and shoot. But it's not. It's this leather pouch and you put a rock in it and you swing it like this around your head until you let go of one end and the rock flies. And if you were a shepherd, you were great at this because you used it against animals that were attacking your sheep. You could do it from a great distance. And so he picks up five smooth stones 
And he goes to fight the giant. You know the rest of the story. We look at David, we go, wow. And you know what I learned in Sunday school? That's not me. I'm the guy on the sideline quaking in my boots. I'm not the guy fighting the giant. And, and you hear this story and you go, oh, wow, look what God can do through somebody brave, through somebody mighty, through somebody great. I mean, David grew up to be the greatest king in the history of Israel. That's not me. And you could go right down the flannel graph stories that are popular in Sunday school. Remember Daniel? He, we went into a lion's den and faced lions and he refused to compromise. And he just served God and they put him in a lion's den and he survived it. And I look at that and I go, wow, that's amazing. That's not me. I don't have that kind of courage. I don't have that kind of faith. I don't have that kind of willingness. You read about those three Hebrew boys that they tossed in the fire. Rather than renouncing God... They went into the fire, and they met God in the fire, and they were brought out safe. And you read that story, and you go, wow, that is amazing. That's not me. And you go right on down the list of heroic Bible characters, and you go, that's not me. That's not me. That's not me. There's got to be, there's, there's, there's people apparently in God's family. There's people apparently in God's kingdom who are heroic. There's people that can be used to change the world. And the one thing I could tell you for sure is that's not me. But then you see the adult version, the PG-13 version of the story of David and Goliath. And you realize when they ask, when he asks the question, what will I get? And he asks it three times and three times they tell him, chicks and bucks, chicks and bucks, chicks and bucks. And David says, wow, chicks and bucks, chicks and bucks. I love God, chicks and bucks. I can do this. <laughs> and I see David and I go, maybe this is me. I have something in common with that guy, right? And, and if you read the rest of his story, I mean, this is great reading this week. Go home and read First and Second Samuel. It's amazing. In the Old Testament, you'll find this whole story. But the story unfolds and you watch David's life and you realize that his ego, his pride, his greed, and his lust continue to be stumbling blocks for him the rest of his life. All this guy is interested in is chicks and bucks and glory. And God says, you know what? I can use that. I can use somebody whose motives aren't exactly pure. I can use somebody who's not exactly ready yet. I can use somebody that nobody else notices. Remember what happened when Samuel came to Jesse's house looking for a new king to anoint? Jesse gathered his sons, and they went from tallest to shortest. These great strapping young men, great leaders, great uh, warriors, men of renown. And right down the line, Samuel said, not him, not him, not him, not him. All through all of them, until he finally ran out of brothers and said, is there nobody else? And Jesse said, well, I mean, no, nobody else who's leadership material. There's nobody else that you would want to anoint to be king. I mean, I got David. He's out there shoveling in the, in the manure pile. Bring him in. They bring him in. He says, this is the man that will lead Israel. 
Jesse shakes his head. This kid's got nothing to offer. This kid is unimpressive. Saul sees him at the battle line, says, well, maybe if we cover him in armor, he'll survive. <laughs> David goes, no, no, no. I got a sling and I got five stones. Did you notice that in the story? David had no expectation that stone number one was going to work. <laughs> David, you go, why did he pick five stones? Like, this is funny to read up on because people look, well, you know, there's like five tribes of the Philistines or, or Goliath had four other. That's all baloney. You know why he picked up five stones? Because he didn't expect four to work. That's why. And he went out there with five stones and he thought, I got these five shots and then I'm dead. Chicks and bucks, chicks and bucks. Okay, I'll try it. And he goes out, the first shot nails him between the eyes and the rest is history. But even David would tell you, that was a God shot. That was not a David thing. He still had four stones in his pouch. He didn't use Saul's armor. He used what he had. And the rest is history. Now, I know you thought we were talking about the church in this series called Better Together, and we are. So let me help you see how we're talking about the church. You and I are in this story. How many times have you failed in your efforts for God? You don't have to answer that. But think about it. How many times have you said, Lord, this is the day from now on, no more of fill in the blank. Lord, this is the day. From now on, I'm going to give you fill in the blank. Only to find that you kept failing God and failing God and failing God because your efforts always seem to fall short. And how many people have you seen probably uh, on the platform at Christian events? How many people have you seen where you were just wowed by that person and you thought, now that's the kind of person God can use and I'm the kind of person who sits in the audience? How many times did you get the message one way or another that you're just not really that important a part of the team? David struggled his whole life with things like lust and pride and anger. He was the least impressive of his brothers, but when it came time for battle, chicks and bucks, chicks and bucks, I love God, chicks and bucks. And he went to fight. And God says to somebody like David, I know you're not impressive. <laughs> I know you don't look like a great leader. I know that nobody has ever followed you anywhere. I know that you are the artist type. And you play the harp and write poetry. But what I need is a warrior. And I will be your strength. Because if you take who you are and you take what you have and you place it into my hands and you take your hands off it and you say, Lord, it's all for you. Use me however you will. I promise you, God will surprise you. He will shock you when you see him using you in ways that you never deemed possible because you're not the platform type. You're not the one that's up front. You're not the one that people follow. You're not the one that people remember. You're not the one that people talk about in a good way. God will surprise you. The world saw David as a joke 
But the Bible says he is a man after God's own heart. Everybody saw David as a nobody, but God knew that he was fearfully and wonderfully made, that he was specifically designed for the purposes that God had for him. And if you read all the way up to Acts chapter 13, you find this little verse hidden in there, and it says, and David served God's purpose in his generation, and then he died. God created David for a purpose. With all of his flaws, with all the wrinkles, with all the problems, with all the issues, God created him, designed him for a purpose, and he used him for that purpose so that after David had served God's purpose in his generation, he laid down and died. Let me tell you something. Nobody could see where David fit except God. And he knows where you fit too. Because he designed you for some very specific roles in the most amazing story ever told. So if you want to know where you fit, the journey begins in Romans chapter 12. Take your Bibles, go to the book of Romans, New Testament, fifth book. Go to Romans chapter 12. I'll give you a second to get there. And while you're going there, let me just tell you, if you read Romans 1 through 11, you would just see this unbelievable treatment of doctrine in which basically Paul says, you know what? People are a mess. Without God, they have no hope. People are a mess. Without God, they have no hope. People are a mess. And without God, they have no hope. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He says, even though... The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And he lays out what we now call basically the gospel message. And he lays the whole thing out. And then we get to this latter part of the book of Romans. And he says, so let me tell you the difference that's going to make in your life. And I want us to pick it up in Romans 12, beginning in verse 3. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the portion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches in his teaching. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let's just stop there. We all have a role to play. Now, if you've, been, if you've been here the last five or six weeks and you've been sitting in on this entire uh, sermon series about how we're better together, again, I, I want to acknowledge, if not apologize, for the fact that I'm beginning to sound like a broken record. If you haven't noticed yet, I'm coming at this from every angle I can come up with to help us get to the same point. And the point is this, you matter in the body of Christ. That being said, what we've been talking about up to this point has, a lot of it has been about what's wrong with the way the church is these days. 
What's wrong with us? What's wrong with the universal church? How do we need to see changes made and all that kind of stuff? And for me, it's been very convicting to read this and to realize, wow, we really need to change. If this world has any chance to see the light of Jesus, the church has to wake up. The church has to revive. We have to be different than we have been. And we've been talking about that for weeks. But today, I have another goal in mind. Today, my goal is to encourage you. Today, my goal is that you would walk out of here, not with your head hanging down going, man, I've been blowing it, but that you would walk out of here with your chin up going, wow, the Lord can use me. That's why I wanted you to think about David with adult eyes. I wanted you to see him in a new light, impure motives, all kinds of problems in his life, all kinds of things that make him less than desirable to be a person who God uses to change the world, and yet God used him. The journey of of your life is about figuring out where God is working, joining him in that work in the way that only you can join him. And I want you to see that he wants to do that in your life. So every time I read this list in Romans 12, I'm amazed where he talks about, you know, prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, all of that. And I just go, wow, this is so amazing, this list, because we all have a role to play. Now, when I say that, I realize the temptation for each of us is to immediately come up with a reason why we're not going to play a role why we really don't fit, why we really are not the one that God would use. Some of you are sitting here and you're just going, you know what? Life has passed me by. All of my hair is gray or gone. (laughs) And I'm at a place now where it's just a matter of not messing anything up before the end. I want you to understand, if you think for a second that you are too old for God to use you to change the world, that there's so much mileage behind you and so little ahead of you that God would never use you to change the world, I want you to remember Abraham and Sarah. (laughs) That God looked for them, and you know what? I I don't think there's anybody in this room older than Abraham and Sarah. Maybe Kurt. I don't know. But I don't know if there's anybody in this room older than Abraham and Sarah. And God said, you know what I'm going to do with you at this stage of your life? You know what Hebrews says about Abraham? He was as good as dead. That's how literally the Bible says he was as good as dead. How many of you feel like that when you wake up in the morning sometimes, right? So he was as good as dead. His wife was also old and barren for her whole life. And through them, God created a nation through which came a savior, through which all of mankind has the opportunity to be saved. And we're sitting here going, you know what? I'm too old. My best days are behind me. God's never going to use me. Or, or maybe you're lucky enough to be one of the ones that is sitting here going, I am too young. Nobody takes me seriously. I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't have any opportunities. I'm just a kid. Tell that to David. Tell that to David who was anointed to be the king of Israel while he was yet a child. 
And then God used him to step up and change the world. Maybe it's not about age for you. Maybe you just know that you've been disqualified. There's stuff in your life. There are issues in your life right now. There are things in your past, perhaps, that you go, you know what? I am not really qualified. I have blown it. God's not going to use me. I am too stained for God to get any glory out of using me. Really? Tell that to a guy named Saul who became a guy named Paul who wrote the book of Romans after he killed a whole bunch of people just for being Christians. You say, what? Okay, I'm not any of those things. I'm just, I'm just nothing special. I'm just, a, I'm just a pew sitter. I just come and watch. I'm just one of the crowd. I'm nobody special. And tell that to Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. Those guys are out there fishing when Jesus walks up one day. And he says, hey, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And those guys change the world. See, we have got to get past this idea of saying, because I'm not, I can't. Because I don't look like, God can't use me. Because I don't have certain gifts, I'm not an important part of the team. Every time I see this list in Romans, I am amazed at how practical and basic they are. Every member of the family of God was designed by God to play an important role in the kingdom of God. You were created for greatness. But before we look at that list more closely, let's not miss the beginnings of the passage. Go back to verse 3 with me. Chapter 12 of Romans. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function. And he goes on. Before we get into the list, we really have to stop and notice something. It all begins with humility. It all begins with humility. There is no way that God is going to use somebody who wants to rob the glory from God. It all begins with humility. He says, listen, before I talk to you about how unique you are, before I talk to you about how special you are, before I talk to you about how you fit where nobody else fits in God's plan that is an eternal plan where you are a key to the whole thing, before I talk to you about how special you are and amazing you are, let me just tell you one thing. You ain't all that. I just want you to understand don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but have sound judgment about how you think of yourself. Because the minute it becomes about you, the minute it becomes about what you have to offer, the minute it becomes about what you get out of it, the minute it becomes about your glory, that's when you are flirting with disaster. And haven't we seen enough people flirting with disaster in the body of Christ and falling off cliffs and giving God a bad name? Guys, let me tell you something. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your role is. I don't care how little known you are. There are people who know you're a Christian, I hope. And they're watching. And, and if you're flirting with disaster, standing on the edge of the cliff, trying not to fall, getting the best view that you can, making it all about you, you're flirting with disaster. 
It has to begin with humility. The scripture says, if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, He will what? Lift you up. Right? So it's about us bowing down and Him lifting us up. That being said, we are essential to what God is doing. Listen to how Paul puts it. Verse 4. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function... So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each of us, uh, each of us is to exercise them according, accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, and so on. Every body part is unique. Every body part is valuable. Every body part is important. We've talked about this. But only because God designed it to play a specific role in the midst of the use of the entire body, right? It's not just, wow, what a great pancreas. That's not what it's about. It's about the role that the pancreas plays in making sure that the body is healthy so that a human being can carry out the role he was designed to carry out. You were made specifically. But giftedness begins with humility. And while we're on the subject, I just need to take a second and say this. Giftedness and maturity are not the same things. See, Paul is going to argue that every one of us is gifted. But you know what we do in the church we make the mistake of thinking that people with certain gifts are more mature than people with other gifts. And it's generally the people who have the upfront kinds of gifts. It's generally the leaders, the teachers, the, the musicians, the, the people who get up in front of us and we look at them and go, wow, they're, they're so far ahead of me. They're so far beyond me. This is something that we struggle with. And as, as pastors... I lead the ministry that teaches leadership to pastors and I get these groups of pastors together and you get them to open up because there's nobody listening to them that can get them in trouble and they start actually sharing and being real. And you know what they say? They say things that give you the indication that their heart is not always in the right place. They say things like, well, once I became a pastor, I stopped growing. I mean, if you think about it, like a hierarchy, right? I mean, there's little kids in Sunday school, and then there's like kids who go to youth camp and get excited and give their lives to Jesus, and then there's maybe uh, people who, who are Sunday school teachers or people who play in the band, and those are a little bit higher up, and, and then we have uh, church staff people, boy, those are the really mature people, and, and then the pastor is the top of the ladder, so when you get to the top of the ladder, you have arrived. There is no more growing to do. And one of the things I have to convince my fellow pastors of is, brother, you're just beginning to grow. And if you stop growing now, you're not ever going to be able to help anybody else grow. See, don't mistake giftedness with maturity. It may just be... Um, honest with you. I've always been a good public speaker. I was a good public speaker long before I met Jesus. 
I, I, somewhere in my, I don't know, in my parents' estate, there's a box full of medals and ribbons that I won as a third grader, fourth grader, fifth grader, sixth grader in speech competitions. And I would stand before big crowds as a little kid, and then I would give speeches, and people would be amazed, and they would be wowed. How could somebody so young do such a great job of public speaking when everybody's so terrified to do it? And the answer is, I have no idea. No idea. I was just born with it. And if you met other people in my family, you would realize I'm not the only one. It's just sort of in our family. We, we just, we're just happy in front of a crowd. In other words, we're egotistical. <laughs> and and I, was all, I got speech medals from the time I was a little kid. Every sports team I was ever on as a, as a kid, I was the captain. Just always. I, I was the commencement speaker at my junior high graduation. All this before I knew Jesus. Now, if you knew me in junior high, you know I was the worst kid in the history of the world, and they made me the graduation speaker. It's just, it's just I, I'm, I'm just better at this than you are. <laughs> or at least I'm better at this than most people are. All of that was before I was a believer. And when I came to Christ at 14, it was not like I suddenly became gifted to lead and speak. I was already that. And yet God began to polish it. You know what? By the time, I know this sounds like I'm bragging, but the point is the opposite. By the time I had been a Christian for six months, I was preaching on a regular basis in front of crowds of hundreds. Now, I had been a Christian for six months my life was a complete mess. I had not gotten my act together in any way, shape, or form. I still walked out of those rooms after I preached the gospel to large groups. I walked out of those rooms right back into the life that I was living all along where I had all kinds of sin and all kinds of habits and all kinds of problems that had never gotten fixed. And you know what? I had a Bible and I used it to tell stories when I preached, but I had no idea what it taught. I was brand new. I was a baby Christian. And these knucklehead crazy people put me up in front of hundreds of people and said, you preach. Guys, I was not mature just because I was gifted. My life is still a mess in many ways. Don't assume that because you see me or Pastor Ricky or the elders or any of the people that are gifted that are standing up here on the stage doing whatever they're doing, exercising their gifts, do not assume that that means anything about maturity with the exception of the elders. The elders are elders because of their maturity. But these flashy gifted people don't assume anything. And don't assume that because you don't have flashy gifts that you're not mature. The two things have nothing to do with each other. Don't confuse giftedness with maturity. Just because you're gifted doesn't mean you, you don't have a lot of growing to do. And on the other side, just because you know you have a lot of growing to do, it doesn't mean you're not gifted, and it doesn't mean you shouldn't be using your gifts. It's just a matter of using them with wisdom. Now, let's look at this list of gifts, and we'll close with this. We go back and we pick it up in uh, verse 6. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the portion of his faith. 
If service in his serving, he who teaches in his teaching, and he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Isn't that an interesting list? It's just one of the many lists that are in the Bible of gifts that God gives to people so that they can use them, he can use them in his purposes. But I love this list because it has things that don't put anybody on a platform. It says... If, if your gift is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. I mean, did it ever occur to you that if you have a really soft heart, that you have your sympathy toward people, you care about causes, you want to help people and all that kind of stuff, that maybe you have a mercy gift? And that you should be joyful about the fact that God puts you in a position where you can do some small little thing to lift somebody up just a little bit and help them to give a cold cup of water in Jesus' name to somebody who was parched, to, to stand up for somebody who's being bullied, to, to step in and offer assistance to somebody who is broken. Maybe God gave you that gift for that purpose and nobody's ever going to put you on a platform because of that gift. If you, you have the gift of giving, like you, you knew I wouldn't miss that, right? If you give, if you have the gift of giving, and it doesn't say giving money, it says giving. Some of you, giving gifts is your love language. That's what you do to care for people. Some of you, God has blessed with resources, financial resources or, or experience or talent or time or whatever, and God has given you those resources and you can't wait to give them. And the scripture says if he's given you the gift of being a great giver, then do it liberally. Man, just pass it out if that's the gift that he gave you. See, it's not all about prophecy. It's not all about leading. It's not all about the things that get you a title and a name on the door in the church building. It's about being a part of the body of Christ. And none of these lists in the New Testament are exhaustive. None of them is the whole list. Even if you put all of them together, it's still not the whole list. The point Paul is trying to make is that God has gifted all of us for a purpose. I bet you if he was writing this book today and it wasn't called the book of Romans, it was called the book of Duardians, I will bet you that it would include things like if you're a graphic artist, create art for the glory of God. If you're a computer technician, fix computers in a way that honors people. If you're a sound engineer, use your gifts in a way that people get to hear the gospel. If you're great with kids, babysit for a mom who is just so tired and needs a day off. If you're, if you're somebody who is an auto mechanic, how about you look for somebody that you know in your neighborhood and you know they're hurting and you know they're out of work and you hear their brakes squeak every time they drive past your house and all you gotta do is knock on their door and say, give me your keys. I'm gonna take care of those brakes for you. Maybe you're gifted. I know this sounds weird, right? We don't think of this at all. Maybe you're gifted to be a janitor. Maybe you see cobwebs when nobody else does. Maybe you have a way of getting bathroom floors clean that just amazes people. And maybe you enjoy cleaning. Could you 
Help somebody who's recovering? Could you go into the home of a shut-in and help clean there? Could you volunteer to clean the church buildings? What, what could you do with the gifts that you have? Don't hold yourself to these lists that you find in Scripture and go, well, either God gave me those gifts and I don't see any of them or I don't fit. Here's the word that God has for you. You are unique. You are special. You fit. He designed you for a purpose. Every gift and talent that you have has come from God, no matter how spiritual it seems. And He intends to use you just as He designed you to make His name great in the world. So how are you doing? Are you letting fear hold you back? Have you become convinced that somehow you're not enough, so you're always going to be one who sits and watches? Do you have this sort of false humility that is so popular among us Christians where people say, man, you're really good at this, and you go, oh, no, I'm not? Or do you actually embrace the fact that maybe God made you good at something because he has a purpose? Are you letting greed and misplaced priorities use up all of the resources and gifts God has given you for things that are about you and not about him? How are you doing? You are on the team because God placed you on the team. He drafted you. He developed you. He wants to use you right now. He wants to use you throughout the future. You have a contribution to make. So mow your neighbor's lawn. Write a new worship song. Volunteer to fix computers for the poor. Coach a soccer team. Volunteer to do somebody's breaks. Work in the nursery. Or better yet, open a daycare in your home that's affordable for people who can't afford expensive daycare. There's a way that you fit. There's a purpose for which you were made. This is the kingdom of God now. It's not something we're waiting for. This is the kingdom of God. And if you're a part of the family of God, you were made for this. Let's stand together and pray. Father, as we think about your goodness and your faithfulness and who we are by comparison, we feel like David. We're not even big enough for the armor. And if you actually looked at the resume, you'd never call on us for anything. And yet here we are, your children endowed with your Holy Spirit, placed on your mission for your purpose in your time. Lord, each one of us placed where we've been placed, when we've been placed, gifted in the ways we've been gifted. And you say we matter. And so, Father, help us to find our fit. Help us to stop sitting back and watching. Help us to step up and do something using our gifts, our talents, our resources, our money, our time, our energy, help us to do something that could ultimately have eternal significance. Help us to serve people. Help us to give liberally. Help us to lead where you've called us to lead others. Help us to speak forth your word if we've been gifted for that. Help us to mow lawns and bless our neighbors. Help us to do whatever it is that you've called us to do. And keep us always growing in Christ so that as we do it, 
you'll get all the glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.